Welcome to Beer and a Movie Podcast, a podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am Carlos Cooper with me as always, Dave Gurney and Ethan Thompson. And today we are um, going to take a dive into a kind of new territory for us, one, or one that comes up in passing a lot, but we've never really dedicated all of our time and energy to. Right. Um, this is a themed episode. If you listen to 90s flops, you've been with us for at least one so far. Um, but we are going to do horror soundtracks because it's October and we're trying to keep it spooky. That's right. And uh, so we are just going to start from at least, and most of this is going to be uh, my perspective of like the history and chronology of the evolution of the horror soundtrack and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to take us back to where I believe some of the earliest influences kind of began and um, some of the technology behind what has influenced a lot of the changes, uh, some of the key players, and then, you know, hopefully, if time permits, and I think it will, if I can get us through it, um, we will kind of inch closer and closer to present day and the landscape of um, horror and suspense, uh, film music as it is today. And of course, we're going to have to listen to a lot of this stuff. So we'll have all of that uh, in there as well because we're not just going to talk about it and not listen to it at all. But of course, as always, first we have a beer. And David has brought us a very appropriately themed uh, beer, maybe the most closely linked as far as thematic tie-ins go yeah. that we've had thus far yeah maybe uh so th- this is a beer that to those in texas uh will will probably be very familiar it shows up on the store shelves this uh during the season every year it is from saint arnold brewery out of houston texas and it is their pumpkinator which is an imperial pumpkin stout um now they at least here in uh, in our town, Corpus Christi, it has not shown up on shelves yet this year, though we are in October. But this is a bottle from 2017 that I've had, and as an Imperial Stout, it tends to age pretty well. Um, and uh, and actually, I, I was saying before the episode, I kind of prefer it uh, with a little age on it, just because it kind of cuts down on the pumpkin spice uh, aspect. I'm not typically a pumpkin beer guy. I'm not really either, but this one I've had at least once before. Uh, and I did enjoy it. I didn't always know that it was a stout. I just knew the name Pumpkinator. And so when I found out it was a stout, it kind of warmed me up to it a little more. Um, but for those who maybe don't get this where they are or maybe don't live in the States at all to our like one UK listener that pops up every now and then, um, this kind of sparks like a craze amongst beer drinkers, at least in my experience. When it yeah. shows up, people are like, where is it? How do I get it? Right. And they like rush to HEB to grab three or four bottles, and they usually are gone just as quickly as they arrived. Right. It is. It is. It's a limited release, so it's a seasonal thing. It really only comes out the month of October, and you might still have a couple bottles on the shelves in November. But yeah, like Carlos says, it's kind of one of those things that once it hits, especially for those people who love pumpkin, boy, they got to get it. Yeah. Um, usually, the last couple of years. Well, actually, I think last year was the first time I was ever like, you know, proactive enough to be able to go to a store and get it. Yeah. Um, Smells pretty amazing. But before that, I've uh, had to rely on somebody else that has it or um, Tapology is kind of known for keeping a couple of back to age. And so sometimes you can get it there. 
um, usually from the previous year or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, historically for me, at least kind of tough to get though. I think, uh, I'm paying a little more attention this year, so I might be, like, I'm sure you'll get your hands might, on a bottle might be a little easier to come by. Yeah. So, so again, uh, themed for the season and, and you know, the label itself even has a little jack-o'-lantern on there. So, um, and yeah, get the, the smell, you know, on the nose, you get a lot of, you get a lot of that spice. Yeah, it's you know it's like pumpkin pie spice. You, it's crazy. Yeah, it, yep. it does smell exactly like pumpkin pie. Yeah, with, with like a little roasty sort of chocolate uh, element there too. That's that's kind of interesting. I've got you know now that I say that I'm like, why have I never found a way to combine chocolate and pumpkin pie? That seems like it could be good. <laughs> why has nobody? I don't think I've ever. I mean, what about like a Reese's cup that had peanut butter? Oh, I mean, I, instead crazy. of peanut yeah. butter, like a pumpkin filling. Yeah, like a Reese's Big Cup, but with pumpkin filling. Man, I, I think we better stop this pod- <laughs> podcast right now and get to work. <laughs> People go crazy for the pumpkin stuff. They it's really true. Do. They it's really true. Do. Uh, um, pumpkin Reese's peanut butter cups, they don't do that. That's, that would be genius. Yeah, it really would I be. mean, they do pumpkin-shaped ones, but that's not really what we want. Bluebell, get on this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Horror movie soundtracks. I mean, we all kind of know some of the biggest players who we're going to talk about. John Carpenter, um, Goblin, mm-hmm. you know, they're these... Well, I mean, you... you Okay, so we all... Okay, you, Carlos Cooper, lover of soundtracks, uh, record store owner, you, you know these. I'm sure our listeners are familiar with John Carpenter's name. Yeah. He, he was both behind the camera as the director, writer... Director, writer, producer... Producer of, of many horror films. Um, but, you know, I think less people realize that he actually... Composer of, of many of his scores. Most of them. Yeah. And even even did music for some of the Halloween movies he wasn't directly attached to anymore as right. a well in his a producer, and the themes that he created have been reused right in fact reused, the yeah. new Halloween that's coming out is using at least elements of well his, he did it he did the entire score yeah okay. and, and and we'll get there because there's all right, um, all right. there's some kind of story behind oh, that and how that okay. happened and just it more has to do with the trajectory of his career in general yeah um as an artist not just as a filmmaker or musician or right. whatever but um but yeah he is he is behind the score right. of the new one which and looks amazing i just got to get that out of the way hey, it looks incredible i normally i'm, I'm not into that kind of stuff but this one like like oh. remake kind of coming back to an old property yeah. so much later but this one really looks like it's got it uh, got it going on for what people are wanting from that kind of movie. But yeah. so, so to really go back, um, you know, a lot of what we know, at least for me and, a, you know, the customers that I talk to and the other soundtrack enthusiasts that I know, as far as horror movie sc- scores go, we really like a lot of like heavy synths and like deep synth pads and bass leads and stuff. And electronic music and horror scores have become somewhat synonymous at sure. this point. We owe a lot of it to John Carpenter, obviously, um, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but really, so if we want to talk about where that kind of starts and where electronic music starts to um, find its way into film, we go back to the 40s and 50s and 60s sci-fi movies. Yeah. Um, so in that time, in like the first half of the 1900s, um, Oh, hold up. That's not right. Can't use that term. 20th century. Thompson's come out on this one. He does stand- not like people using 1900s. 1900s he is a decade century. from 1900 okay. to But you're totally comfortable with people saying 1800s. 
Yeah, because those were the 1800s. Yeah, 1900. There, there, there was a decade at the beginning of but, the 1800s. But there's not. But what happened between 1800 and 1809 that we ever need to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, sorry, Carlos. You, I, just, you unwittingly fell into this trap of mine. It's, I, it's as if you had mentioned Gabriel Byrne. And, and, <laughs> it seems just a, and I understand why you. Yeah, it's, it's. I understand why you mentioned that because this podcast that the three of us advocate for and like a whole lot. Uh, I think maybe you haven't listened yet. Uh, Cocaine and Rhinestones. I have. Okay, and he I uses started. that term that yeah. in the 1900s. And I. Yeah. I, I, I know it's just. I'm not. a couple episodes deep into that. Okay. One. Yeah. I, and it's it is very good. Yeah. Um, I'm upset that it's taken me so long, but in the first half of the 20th century. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Specifically in the year 1928. Because synthesizers um, in 1905, not very good. Well, didn't exist, I yeah, think. Right. Um, so, <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so <laughs> 1928, there is a patent filed for a device called the theremin. Ooh. And this was invented, um, It's uh, it is named after the westernized name of its Soviet inventor, uh, Leon Theremin. And this is... Without a doubt, one of the craziest instruments I've ever seen and played in my entire life. I mean, as a musician, like I, I you know, I play multiple instruments. Um, like I was a drummer for a while. I play guitar, and I've more recently, in my own work as a film composer, have had been forced to teach myself rudimentary piano. Uh, so you know, synthesizers come into all that kind of stuff, keyboards and whatnot. But I was at a friend's house. Um, Mr. Bright, as you both know, and I said something about a theremin, and he was like, oh, I've got one over here. Do you want to play it? And I was like, what the... (laughs) First of all, in 2017, which is when this was last year, who the hell has a theremin? Just like, why would you ever need need one? The only person (laughs) I know that has a theremin and advocates for it, and I don't know them personally, but uh, is Hannibal Burris. He plays it on his podcast all the time. Really? He's like really, really, really into the theremin. Nice. Apparently, he bought it for his nephew who never played it so he took it back and was like man this is dope and i can so, imagine like your you know austin hipster yeah bar mustache but not successful local attorney yeah um, or one. or uh internationally renowned comedian uh, yeah yeah but but anyway so it's it's this thing and it creates this elect electric signal that your body becomes the ground for Mm -hmm. and there's like this one device that controls the volume and then there's another one that's um, right yeah that's pitch and they're you don't touch them you just get closer to them in your body waving your hands near these they look like antenna they they look exactly like that and so your body's controlling the circuitry and it is and just incomprehensibly difficult instrument to play because the small move like millimeters that you move your hand control the pitch. And so to be perfectly in tune is next to impossible for like the average person. But this is the instrument that is responsible for all of the crazy sci-fi sounds and Mm -hmm. music and like, you know, just, um, mood and tone that you hear in a lot of those old movies. And one of, um, one of the ones that comes to mind immediately, uh, it being one of the uh, early, you know, sci-fi, heavily electronic soundtracks, is uh, for Forbidden Planet. This one, ah, fantastic um, film. Yeah, so I mean, we're talking 1956, mm-hmm. um, pretty early, and this is by uh, Lewis and BB Barron, and it just has all of those creepy sounds and electronic 
like soundscapes really that um, we kind of come to expect and take for granted. But at the time, you know, stuff like this is crazy than like kind of not normal. You know, we're still in the age of heavily orchestral um, movie scores. So we'll just listen to a little bit of this for a second so we can kind of get an idea. I mean, so this isn't necessarily music in its traditional sense, but it definitely is setting the tone for the film. David, you looked as if you were about to say something. Well, I, I, I don't want to undercut what, what you've just said, but I, I just I looked up the theremin. Pa- oh, you, you just saw this. No, go ahead. Okay, so, the, so I was looking on film music for the theremin, and it was not used in the Forbidden uh, Planet soundtrack. The the Barons built a disposable oscillator circuit and ring modulator to create electric tonality. So yeah. is it kind of a similar uh, approach to making electronic sounds, but they weren't actually using a theremin? Interesting. Yeah. I, I, you know, I guess I didn't actually look for that specifically. I just knew that the theremin was responsible for a lot so the, of sci-fi But some of the films sounds. that it was, the, Ethan mentioned The Day the Earth Stood Still, still. That, was, that was present, The Thing... That that was also um, one, yeah. used in the original thing, yes, um, and it, and it was actually used in some other more um, th- th- not so much horror films, but Spellbound, the Hitchcock film, mm-hmm. The Lost Weekend. Also, uh, there is a, a a great documentary, feature documentary about Leon Theremin who invented it. Yeah, um, that I want to recommend. It's Theremin and Electronic Odyssey, and it's available on Amazon Prime. Uh, it is really film. interesting. I mean, he the KGB k- kidnaps him. Forces him to like work on inventions for them. Yeah, <laughs> it's and pretty it, pretty wild. And and to your point, Carlos, about it being a notoriously tough instrument to uh, to really control. I mean, there I think there were people who could do it, but um, the Beach Boys used it in Good Vibrations, and they had somebody come in and play it uh, to to be able to do it for the recording. But then when they were on the road, like they weren't bringing it. <laughs> so no, they, they actually had like a small unit created that had more of a touchpad kind of thing. Oh, wow. Where, and I believe Mike Love could even do it. So if that Mike, must Love, have been if simple, Mike right? Love could manage it, it was an easy theremin. The play school theremin yeah. version. Yeah. So, um, well, my credibility has been totally no, undermined at no, the very no, start no. of this episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not my intent. I just felt I no, no. To, I mean, yeah. you're right. I, 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 I didn't. I just, I wasn't planning on talking about that film that much. Right. I just used it as a jumping off point. But, but super creepy. I mean, super, you hear that. Yeah. It's like unsettling, kind of you know, spine tingling, kind of chilling sound. It's something very. It's, it, you know, to hear that kind of, especially you know, thinking about it in a moment where those kind of sounds were just. Totally. Yeah, foreign. no one ever heard such right. a thing at all. Um, you can understand how that got incorporated as a regular kind of element of those kind of sci-fi horror films. Yeah. Um, yeah, it must have been like totally insane to hear that kind yeah. of stuff in those movies. That I can't even imagine like being 
in like hearing that for the first time, you know? Right. Um, and it not being something that was like normal or that people had heard before. Um, but you know, as technology progresses and things like that, um, it becomes more playable, um, easier to control, uh, the key and the pitch and everything like that. Um, probably the biggest, um, breakthrough in this is, uh, Robert Moog's, uh, modular synthesizer, the, the system 55, I think is what they're calling it now. They kind of just recently came back and started reproducing it again. Um, but I mean, but this thing is massive. Like it's a wall, a whole wall of your house or studio or whatever. Um, but it was adopted by people like Keith Emerson from Emerson Lake and Palmer and, um, who worked on some Dario Argento films, but this kind of playability that comes, uh, with the advancements in technology Robert Moog made, um, allows for it to be used more conventionally and you can get a lot of different sounds from them. Uh, so that's a big part of where John Carpenter comes in. He, um, his first movie, Dark Star, he was making as a student at USC, I believe. And, Go Trojans. Yeah, go Trojans. Uh, we we have a Trojan in the house here, so yeah. He was USC, right? Do you know for sure? No, um, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I I'm pretty, I'm pretty I'm sure, sure he was. That. He because um, they're usually pretty. Uh, maybe he just never gave them any money, so they don't. Well, no, he dropped out. Ah, oh, um, that well, that, that doesn't matter. Too. Well, <laughs> he he dropped out during the making of Dark Star because he realized that, or you know, USC. He said, there you go. He was like, I was. He felt he was in school doing it, and then. He was like, wait, I could just, I don't need to be in school to do this. I could just make this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, USC Cinema during 1969, yada, yada, yada. His first short film was called Captain Boyer, and I think that, you know, kind of becomes uh, Dark Star, which is a comedy film, a sci fi comedy film, uh, not what he's known for. Right. But for him, it was just cheaper to do his own music. I mean, he had uh, enough of the skill set to be able to do it. And for that first uh, movie, Dark Star, he used a 1974 EMS VCS3 synthesizer, um, a pretty rudimentary synth for the time. Um, not hugely influential as a score, but it that plants the seed for him going on to do that for the rest of his movies. It's, it's interesting to think that John Carpenter started using electronic music in his films purely out of utility. Yeah. And, I mean... He doesn't care about the gear he's using. I mean, none of that stuff matters to him. It's just, here's here's one thing I can get all these different sounds yeah. out of, and I don't have to pay somebody a lot of money to do it. But because he did that, it became, you know, a whole, like, the kind of the the norm or the standard for what of a lot of... Right. Especially in the 80s. I mean, things got so synth-heavy, especially in horror movies. Um, yeah. But it, but it, you, you, you make a good point. I mean, it's interesting how something kind of born out of necessity... Um, yeah. and, and, and more, more point of efficiency and, and even frugality, it became a sound so associated with this genre that, um, you know, it, it wasn't like he was setting out to like, oh, horror films should sound this way. Yeah. It yeah. was just, I want to make music that can work to set moods in this film. And this is a cheap way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't afford an orchestra, yeah. but I can somewhat emulate a string sound with right. this and right. all this other stuff. Um, but as I said, the Dark Star score wasn't hugely influential. People don't remember that theme or, you know, there wasn't really even a theme to it. But um, So then in steps the Italian prog rock band Goblin to work <laughs> with Dario Argento. So the first movie they do with him is in 1975, and it's Deep Red. And 
this is another interesting story of kind of like a happy accident of how this happened. I mean, because for, for those that really pay attention to film scores, Goblin is like it for a lot of, especially sure. the Italian horror stuff. I mean, their music in those is so, so much a part of what makes those movies work and like great and stand the test of time and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, they're just like giants in that yeah kind of realm. But Deep Red, which is their first collaboration with Argento, um, he, Dario Argento, did not like the music that Giorgio Gasolini the original composer was making. Uh-huh. So he tried to get Pink Floyd to do it. And only after Pink Floyd turned him down did he turn to Goblin. Uh-huh. And so that kind of, he couldn't get who he wanted. So he was like, oh, I guess I'll get these guys. And they end up being some of the most like influential horror movie composers. But um, they did Deep Red. They ended up using Giorgio Gasolini's theme for that. And Goblin had a lot of, there were, like, I think, three compositions that Gasolini did. The rest of it was Goblin. But... Their more noticeable is uh, their theme for Suspiria, which was in 1977, the next collaboration they did with Argento. So we can listen to a little bit of that. Now, this is especially relevant now as we are about to be given a Suspiria remake. Um, but they really did use such a heavy amount of electronic instrumentation on this from the Mellotron, which is like a very, very famous um, kind of somewhat sample based instrument that right. relied on this tape loop mm-hmm. um, uh, to a Fender Rhodes keyboard, one of the most famous electric piano sounds. Um, the Mini Moog, which Devo is very well known for using amongst countless other people, but they also did use that huge System 55 giant modular synthesizer for this one. Um, And this kind of fusion of rock and electronic music, I mean, Mm -hmm. you're familiar with Goblin, I mean. I am. No, I I was, um, yeah, back in uh, college when when I was introduced to, well, actually, it it was interesting. I remember the first Dario Argento that I ever saw was actually there, there was a band uh, that that I used to play on at show, shows with. They would be on the same bill as us, and they were you called, were in a band. I was in a band. God, and, I'm learning so much today. <laughs> they were called the Beboos. So that so this band would have these clips that they had put together of different like just scenes from horror films and yeah. stuff. And so there were some scenes from. I know Suspiria was in there and these other films, but I didn't know them. I didn't know those films. It wasn't something that I was aware of. And then in college, at some point, I think somebody had, I was at a party or something and somebody had it on the background. I'm like, I know those images. I've seen those before. (laughs) And he's like, oh yeah, that's Dario Argento. And so then I listened to, and yeah, and then once I heard the scores, it was really, yeah, oh, this is awesome. Because it's, like you say, it's this marriage between rock and this kind of synth-based 
um, scoring that you know John Carpenter does, and it's and it's super creepy. It is. It's very creepy, very unsettling, and, and it's, it's that combination of things that I think makes some of the like striking imagery of Argento's films also really work. Like especially in Suspiria, there's a lot of crazy lighting yeah. uh, choices that is reminiscent of our previous episode with Mandy and some of that other stuff right. as well. Um, so that's, that's 77 when Suspiria comes out mm-hmm. 78, the, the, I will definitively say this right now, <laughs> the most classic film theme of all time. Ah is introduced to us and that's John Carpenter Halloween. Oh, um, yes. And as if as if you didn't know what it sounded like already, we'll just we'll give you a little bit of it. Yeah. I mean, perhaps only second to uh Bernard Herman's Psycho. But I mean, and and one thing that really makes this so unsettling is the five-four time signature yeah. of it, which is just one extra beat <laughs> than what than what we're used to in like yeah. the four-four standard like pop, you know, music time signature. But I mean, it's so good. Yeah. It, I mean, really. Totally born out of utility and necessity. Um, but I, I was I was reading an interview with him on uh, professional music technology, this online website or online magazine, I should say. Um, and in that, it talks about they're they're trying to ask him about gear, and he seems super uninterested in yeah. it. And he says it was just a way to sound big with just a keyboard. It's a direct <laughs> quote of how he started right. composing his own music. Well, electronically. Is, I mean, it is funny to think, you know, again, like I'm, I'm sure that was the case in his moment. He was just going to the, the shop or whatever, buying what he thought could get the most range of sounds yeah. for what he was able to get. But now, you know, nowadays you have gearheads who are oh, yeah. constantly looking for this specific synthesizer from this specific era with these specific settings. And, it, you know, again, I get it that he was probably never nerding out about the gear in that way. He was just thinking, what can I get for a reasonable price that's going to be able to deliver the sounds that I think I need? Yeah, yeah. and still not to this day. I mean, we'll get more to his like present right. day uh, work in a little bit. But, um, yeah, so that's 1978, the most iconic film theme of all time, in my personal opinion. Um, that same year, though, uh, we get the Dawn of the Dead soundtrack from Goblin, right. um, which is fantastic. Um, Dawn of the Dead, man. The, the, a better zombie movie has not been made. I mean, I think it eclipses Night of the Living Dead as... Uh, as the greatest zombie film. What do you think? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Opinion. I don't have the a shopping I, mall. I, come I on. Yeah. I do not disagree uh, with that. Um, it's to, to me like, yeah, no, when I saw that film, yeah, love that. Yeah. Um, so through that, I mean, you know, if we wanted to, we could talk a lot about the eighties. Um, but there's just so much in there. I mean, at that point, it becomes pretty standard to have electronic scores in horror movies, um, especially, you know, kind of be ones that have, uh, you know, lived on as um, cult movies and things like that. Um, uh, Forbidden World, Killer Clowns, 
Shockwaves was in 77, but that's one that... A movie I haven't seen, but that Waxwork put the soundtrack out for, and I really enjoy that. Demons, another Dario Argento-related um, yeah, film. Yeah, he produced He produced that it, one, yeah. yeah. Didn't, yeah. didn't direct it, but I mean, right. there's video drum. I mean, there's so many in the 80s that we could spend forever talking about great 80s electronic scores, but all of that starts with Goblin with John Carpenter. Um, and I'm sure there's some like really unsung hero of the late seventies that I'm missing that somebody's going to be really pissed at me about. <laughs> um, but let's be real. I mean, those are the Titans of, uh, electronic horror scores mm-hmm. and really kind of just like set us off in that, uh, in that direction. And, and so, when we come back, we'll talk a little more about present day and how that's kind of that influence has lasted and um, what we're seeing right now. Um, you guys are probably already shouting at your radio or phone or whatever because <laughs> you know exactly who we're going to talk about um, at a certain point. But uh, but before, before we that, go to that break, Pumpkinator, what are you thinking? I mean. I mean, with a year of age on it, you did mention that the age kind of brings the spice down a little bit. And I agree it does. Um, I mean, still really heavy on the nose spice wise. Mm -hmm. Um, you can really smell it, Mm -hmm. but not, not as much on the palate, but it is very, I mean, it's really good, super smooth and drinkable, but it is. And and I think what I like too is, uh, you know, it's definitely an Imperial stout, but you do get this like kind of almost vegetal thing that the pumpkin kind of brings in that I doesn't always come through with it. I mean, cause the stout tends to kind of drown that out almost. It's like, it's so roasty. And in this one, they find a nice balance in it. I mean, I think San Arnold, one of the unsung heroes of the, uh, um, craft beer world where they've just been around so long. They're we taken take, for granted. Yeah, We take them for granted. I, I know we've said it before on this podcast and I think every time we drink one, we'll say it again because it really is, the Divine Reserve series we've had, that. yeah, yeah. No, Bishopsburg. I mean, and just, I mean, even the stuff you can get all the time is pretty good. It's true. I mean, it's true. There are only a, only a few that I've kind of been like, eh. All right. So we, we've we've made a uh, dark beginning, and we'll we'll segue into a a dark second half here in just a moment. I got a question that, what about Giorgio Moroder? I mean, I know, did he ever do anything that was he like... He did some film scores. But not, but but I know he, he really did some film scores. He did Electric he did Dreams. Midnight Express. Right? Midnight Express, yeah. Um, Electric Dreams, Cat People. Yeah, Cat People. Which right. is kind of a horror yeah. film. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but... Um, he, yeah, I mean, he, he kind of, he was on the outskirts. But he would be like influential on these people, wouldn't he? Most likely. I mean, he, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they would have been aware that, oh, here's this guy I mean, who's popularizing now. it in yeah. 
music. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah and but it, I mean, but if we got into all of their influences and everything, I mean, we'd have a four-hour episode, right? Um, um, I, I mean, really, I think I this undertaking was pretty large for an hour episode. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm really trying to, I guess, just hit highlights. But he did um, he did a score for Metropolis as well. I knew, mm-hmm. yeah, there, there was something. But yeah, he didn't really get into horror as much. Yeah, yeah, Electric Dreams is pretty. <laughs> Pretty goofy, but uh, but, I don't think I've ever seen it. Oh my god, it's terrible! I remember it coming out. I remember you know the the song. song. Yeah, yeah. But I did have a copy of Midnight Express recently, and I I've never seen the film, but um, I remember when the record came in and I saw Giorgio Moroder's name on it. I was like, oh, I'm gonna listen to this, and it's a really great score. I mean, I love Moroder. I mean, yeah, you can't can't say anything bad about him. I don't Mm -hmm. think, but but anyway. We're back, and we're going to uh, pick up in the 90s or so on these uh, kind of horror-ish uh, soundtracks. Um, one of them may be somewhat debatable, but um, <laughs> whether it's horror or not. But, yeah, we're going to pick up and kind of try to get us to present day, um, especially because there's been such a resurgence of these synth-heavy uh, horror soundtracks in the last five years or so. Uh, and so we definitely want to start talking about that. Cause I mean, those have been some of the biggest film music, um, kind of not just releases as far as their physical releases go, like, you know, the records or CDs or whatever, but just like cultural kind of moments. Zeitgeisty. Uh, zeitgeisty. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're definitely gonna, gonna get there. Um, but before we get into all of that, of course, we have to open another beer. Yes. Um, any objections? <laughs> <laughs> Only my liver. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, for this one, we're going to keep it dark, uh, just like the music that we're talking about. Um, I have never had anything from Full Sail before, personally. I, I don't know why. Just ha- It just hasn't happened. Well, the, you know, the, it's interesting because, you know, you brought that and you said, oh, you know, I recognize the label. And they were, I feel like, just a, you know, I mean, this is, they've been around for a while. Since yeah, the 90s. they just kind of they, they fall were, into the background they, of things. Right, they right? were part of that kind of like early wave of craft beer that came mm-hmm. along in the 90s. Yes, the bottle says specialist in the liquid refreshment arts since 1987. Oh, 87. Okay, so they really were like part of that first wave of yeah. craft beer in the States. And, you know, there was a time where I can remember picking up, I mean, they had a series, I can't remember what it was, but they would they would change the recipe every time. They mm-hmm. had like a special, and I can remember even just, you know, five, six years ago, that being something that when I saw it appear on the shelves, I'd be like, oh, I'll try this this version of it or whatever it was. So, I mean, they've been getting distribution fairly widely because we're here in yeah. Texas. They're out of Oregon yeah. um, for Hood a long River. time, Hood River. And uh, they've been around. But now that the market has kind of swelled with all these new upstarts and all yeah. that you know the other regional breweries become and stuff, pretty saturated. they, they kind of get drowned out but but it's nice to see you know here here they are with a nice imperial stout that's uh yes this is bourbon barrel aged um and so we've we've had some issues before um with expired brews um from a certain you know whatever uh, retailer. Mm-hmm. This one might play to our advantage this time around. Uh, that it's been sitting a this little This one while. says Brewmaster Reserve 2015. 
Uh, and okay. I bought it yesterday. So <laughs> well, that should be interesting. Let's so see. we'll see. Uh, yeah, I did. I didn't notice the date until we sat down just now, uh, and I was looking at the bottle a little more intently. So you know, who knows? Well, they aged it for you. Let's. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's, Maybe let's it's see. a really fantastic deal. I hope so. I mean, it's interesting. I'm. I am finding with aging things in general that there there are certain things that do benefit from a little bit of age, and I think. For me, it's when they tend to be a little bit boozier to begin with, and then they kind of mellow out a little bit. Or like with the pumpkinator, where it's kind of got a spiciness to it that kind of mellows out a little bit. But if it's something that the flavors to to begin with are good, you probably want to get them right at the, the beginning. But this, you know, being an imperial stout, could well have been one of those boozier things. So. It smells nose, good. I'm still, yeah, I'm yeah. getting bourbon. So I'm not seeing good. any ugly faces made. So. No, it no. smells great. I think we may um, be safe. So we'll get back to that in a little bit. Um, the last time, right before the break that we left off, we were talking about the 80s and how, you know, big synth and electronic mm-hmm. laden scores became. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this specifically right before, and if I did, you know, you can, but... Noisy made a 31 best electronic horror movie soundtracks of all time list. And inexplicably to me, um, chopping mall is number six. I mean, I, for those, for those that have seen this movie, uh, I mean the, the, the score is good, but the movie itself is just absolutely ridiculous. And so the fact that the score got that high on that list to me is, uh, kind of baffling, (laughs) but you know, I do own a copy of it on vinyl, so I can't really knock it. In any, I mean, I do enjoy it, but well, I, just, you know, I, I don't think I would have ever put it in a top 10 of anything, right. uh, personally. <laughs> um, but not to say that it's bad. But anyway, so after the 80s, you know, the 90s come around. Um, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some important horror movies that come out of that time. I, you know, I use important kind of loosely, but there's some ones that are, you know, iconic that we still remember. I know what you did last summer, uh, Scream, you know, some things like that. But nothing crazy, nothing on the level of Halloween or Nightmare on Elm Street or anything like that. Um, Which had a good score, too. Did, yeah. yeah. And and Friday the 13th. Uh, yeah. Which we'll probably get to at some point here pretty shortly. Um, so, but one really notable soundtrack work that was done was for Twin Peaks um, mm. by Angelo... Battlementi. Battlementi. I mean, I've always struggled with it myself. Battle of I, I'm, right I'm sure there. an Italian uh, speaker could do a much better job, but Battle of Menti for, for our purposes, for our purposes works. Yeah, I mean, this guy's a, a genius. I think. I mean, the work he's done with David Lynch has been so good. Yeah, uh, and and interestingly, like, and initially made the connection with Lynch not because he was going to do the score, but apparently was going to be like kind of the vocal coach for uh, Rossellini. Interesting. In, uh, really? Velvet, yeah. But then ended up kind of getting roped into yeah. more. Yeah. And they've worked together a number of times. Oh, yeah. No, it started, I mean, that they've, been, I mean, right up until the most recent uh, Twin Peaks, The Return series. Yeah. yeah. So did he do Blue Velvet? He yes. did, yeah. Yeah. And this, this we're listening to is not the main theme. It's Laura Palmer's theme, yeah. um, which is one of my favorite uh, p- 
pieces from the score. Well, you, the main theme is wonderful. I mean, and, and, and if we played it, everybody would recognize it, I'm sure. But it's a it's it it's a little off. It it has that kind of undertone of a Here something is not quite right. But but Laura's theme, right? This Laura's is the, theme. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, this is one that really gets to that. I mean, so you have this kind of this moment right here. It's like, and then. Uh, uh, oh no! This is shit. This <laughs> no, is not good. This is not good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so you know, like the the opening theme is wonderful and it sets the mood, but there, there's still this kind of uh, openness about it. Here, yeah, this is tragic, this is scary, this is unsettling. And it's just so good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, ridiculous. Um, well, we gotta hear this part. Uh, uh. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's dark again. Um, Wrapped in plastic. <laughs> So, as we stated, he's worked on a number of David Lynch films. Eventually, uh, in the 90s, we get the Lost Highway soundtrack uh, with some very unfortunate pieces by Trent Reznor. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the main reasons that I'm not spending more time on the 90s is because of, that's when Trent Reznor really starts to kind of break into film scoring. I mean, Ooh. I mean, he really, I guess, hits his stride later on with like David Fincher and well, I was gonna the say stuff that, he did with Atticus Ross. Um, yeah. Probably what he's most known for today, but it begins in the 90s and, you know, that's where things go horribly awry. Um, I particularly... The, there is that, uh, you know, the, I mean, just to, to put in a little bit of a, uh, a bit of advocacy for Lost Highway, which I do think is a wonderful film. If, if, if uh, our listeners have not seen Lost Highway. I think I feel like it's one of those that that often gets overlooked uh for for David Lynch. Um but it is totally worth seeing. It is right there with Mulholland Drive in terms of that kind of strange, weird approach to narrative that uh you know again in in the music it's it's a little bit um it's of the nineties. I, I will totally grant you that. But uh but I don't know. There's there's some good stuff in there too. I mean, there's um. I mean, there's only a couple of Trent Reznor songs, right? Or like there you go. Works on it. Um, mm-hmm. There's definitely good stuff, but I just the industrial thing doesn't make sense. I just I don't get it. I never got it. Yeah. Um, I never got into it. And I know Ministry and Skinny Puppy and stuff <laughs> like that. I mean, was a big deal. Uh, not for me. Yeah. Uh, Nine Inch Nails, I have never understood. Ever. Yeah. You don't have enough time because you're listening to Ska. <laughs> and I'm having a <laughs> wonderful time doing it. Uh, it was a moment. I mean, it, it, honestly, you know, yeah. I don't know that I, I could have. I don't. I can't have a disinterested position on Trent Reznor because it's so of the 1989 yeah, 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 that yeah. era in high school. I mean, mine was a little, you know, the, yeah. But when I came to that stuff, I mean, I went to see Ministry this year. I'm not. I'm not like. <laughs> it's, yeah. It, it, it. That was a moment that did resonate with me for various Resonerate. Resonerate. Yes. And Pretty Hate <laughs> oh, Machine God. and Downward Spiral. Oh, man, man. we were talking about my band earlier. I was we did March of the Pigs. That was one wow. of our one of our songs that we did. Nice. Yeah. 
step I, right up in March. I mean, yeah. I, I've, I've, re- I mean, I've tried. I've, I've tried <laughs> listening to Nine Inch Nails records, and I, I think, the, I think the last time that I tried was when I really knew one hundred percent. It's not your. Thing. It wasn't my thing. I was listening. That's to, cool, uh, man. I was listening to a podcast. Um, called Guys We Fucked. I don't know if you're yes. familiar with this podcast, the oh, anti-slut-shaming podcast. And at one point, one of the, uh, there's two hosts, um, and Corinne, one of the hosts, says, she makes some kind of joke about Downward Spiral being like the ultimate like fucking music or whatever. Which is... Yeah, that song, I want to, you like an animal, right? Yeah. Uh, really? I don't yeah. th- Okay. I mean, I mean no, I, I'm not advocating for it. As a, I just like it doesn't surprise me. I, and, I've and, never I, tried I, I it mean, out. I don't know. Maybe. It seems too on the nose. I'm yeah, just, it is. I, like, <laughs> yeah. Right. It's and a I, I you know, I, I think I think a lot of that was like a joke or whatever. But right. but I remember her saying that and her talking about like oh. how much she like loves that album, not just for that, but just in general, yeah. and, you know, stuff like that. And I was like, you know, I've heard a lot of people hype up Nine Inch Nails, but this is. Uh, kind of hype I've never heard this band given before I'm gonna go back and listen to it and see if I can figure it out and nope got nothing and and I, it's and I, I don't have anything wrong with Trent Reznor the guy I mean I think he's an interesting guy did you like the social network soundtrack I it was pretty decent it's yeah. a great sound I li- I like that soundtrack he, a I mean lot. He, he's he, he's done some good stuff in the last like 10 years or so um, right. I, but I don't think that it's really anything yeah. to write home about yeah, yeah, necessarily yeah. well I'm, I'm, I'm actually working on a, a short film score right now and the guy just sent me Trent Reznor uh, stuff as reference as the, for what uh, he wanted me to do now we're, yeah. now we're getting to the truth here yeah, yeah. Like, this and is the real cause like, oh, okay. I'm not gonna be <laughs> no, I'm not this. doing this I mean I can't I mean cause it's so droney and a lot yeah. of what he was going for is so droney and kind okay. of just like soundscapes and I'm like okay I kind of get what you're going on so yeah. I'm like, trying to do my own thing with it but um, but, but when he started sending it to me, I was like, okay, <laughs> all That's right. Funny. Um, I think it'll end up working out, but anyway, so I'm just going to skip the two thousands in general, but the 2010s, cause I, I really think this is the most important. The last eight years, uh, is probably the most important as far as electronic soundtracks go specifically uh-huh. in horror. For me in, you know, from what I have observed in conversations I've had with people, the drive soundtrack is a huge jumping off point for this resurgence and uh, renewed interest in this really synth heavy kind of film music. And I know drive isn't a horror movie at all, but it, no, it's <laughs> not, it's not. I, right. I, and I know that, but it's not. it is, but it is. Yeah. I get, what but you're it's, saying. it's suspenseful and it's yeah. kind yeah. of intense and all that kind of stuff. And you know, it has similar moods to what you would expect from a horror movie at times, though it is not one in its own right. And it's um, also a film that you would expect to be like various different pop songs, maybe or original songs. And it's and, not. And it's not. Yeah. It's like one great song, basically. Right. It, it, it does have well, some some uh, compilation kind of work in it, but it's predominantly Cliff Martinez, if I'm not mistaken. And then, um, but it, but then uh, prominently the Kavinsky song. Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, and is it College? Is the other College? Yeah. 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 I mean. Um, yeah, I mean it. It's interesting that you're you're pointing out. So there there was this, um, you know, I think the the parallel to the synth score in horror films that was going on in the '70s and '80s was synth pop, right? So you had in in popular music this kind of rise of the synthesizer, and then in the 2010s we had the rise of this 
little subgenre, synth wave, where yeah. people were sort of calling back to that. And I think you're right. Drive was one of those first films where mm-hmm. that synth wave soundtrack kind of came back in and in terms of style really helped redefine the aesthetic of that score has carried on into so many other things yes. not just horror related but it i mean we definitely got a lot more synth oriented horror stuff after that yeah um i mean but you know this is not to say that it only came back in horror it came back in a lot of things i mean um just electronic music in general for film uh, the most notable one that comes to mind when I think about it that's not horror-related is Mistress America, the Noah Baumbach, Greta oh, Gerwig yeah. movie. I mean, that has a lot of OMD and Suicide, and mm-hmm. all of the original uh, score pieces in that are very 80s. How did I miss this movie? Um, what is it? Mistress, you never saw that? Mistress America. It's incredible. No. Yeah. It was I, after Francis Ha. I love yeah. OMD. Yeah, it's so good. Um, okay. It's, yeah. you know, it's really fun. I, I I happened to look up movie listings on a particular Friday because I had the beginning of the afternoon off and I saw it and I was like, oh, no, bound back. What? And Because I hadn't heard anything about it. So I just yeah. randomly went and watched it, me and like four other people. And mm-hmm. I was like, that was amazing. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it is really, really good. And in my opinion, it's a Greta Gerwig film. No, bound back gets a co-director credit, but mm-hmm. I really think, especially after seeing Lady Bird, that she has a lot of it. But anyway, that's yeah. a podcast for another time. <laughs> is it, um, I had to ask though, is it set in the 80s or is it just... No. No, okay. no, um, it's, yeah. no it's not. Um, but anyway, so then, so then this movie in 2014 called It Follows comes out. And this has a really, really heavy synth score. I well, don't know. And, and in prep for this uh, podcast, you you would ask us, listen, I had I've not seen it follow. You've not seen the film? No, I've not. Oh, but um, the, and I and I didn't really know about the score. A disaster piece. Disaster piece. He had done I, some like he, video he was game like a chip stuff. Tune yeah, dude. He yeah. Was, he was doing stuff with video game. Um, the, the uh, what do you call it? Like the. With the sound palette that a video game would yeah, have. Yeah, like 8-bit stuff right. and whatnot. Yeah, um, yeah and, and the director, who's um, Robert Mitchell, I think. It's probably wrong. Uh, I didn't write it down or look it up, and I should have. Um, just happened to hear his stuff and approached him about it. But, I mean, at least for me, and granted, I'm probably overlooking certain things. Um, I can't stress that enough. But I remember hearing this and just being like, holy shit, this is like this is crazy. I mean, this is so intense and I mean, really, we're talking like really fat synth lines um, oh, man. throughout this. <laughs> and a fantastic film. I mean, you, re- you really should see it no, at some I point. Should. It's a really interesting premise. Um, David Robert Mitchell. David Robert Mitchell. Very close. I know that there's been other electronic film scores in the last 10 or 15 years or whatever, but for me, this one 
especially in the context of the film. It takes place in a Detroit suburb, and it's just, I mean, it fits, it just fits the setting and the theme of the film so much. It's, I mean, it's really an amazing work, yeah. uh, in my opinion. And then, okay, so that happens, and this is another one. You got to keep in mind, I've been working in a record store for the last like five years or whatever, mm-hmm. and a lot of you know what shapes my opinions on how important something is is how many people are coming in asking to own that particular piece of film music and this is one that when it came out on vinyl sold out instantly not just in stores but from the label itself i mean it took months for a reissue and people banging down the door like when are you going to get this back in stock when are you going to get this back uh for the label to finally be able to come through with a reissue of it um hugely popular at the time of its release and i mean and the film received you know a lot of praise as well Mm -hmm. uh, because it is a fantastic film and then this is a thing everyone's been expecting us to talk about. I think um, <laughs> I would be expecting it if I were a listener. But 2016, Stranger Things happens. Yeah. And I mean, does it get more like zeitgeisty than the theme hey. for for that show? I mean, at least in the Beer last... Beer and a Netflix yeah. is what we're going to call this podcast. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> but Michael Stein and Kyle Dixon are part of the band Survive from Austin, right. worth noting. Um Netflix Stranger Things debuts when we get this. I mean, right out, right out the gate. I mean, this. I, I remember watching this series that summer that it got released there in 2016. Yeah. And just that opening sequence with this uh, theme was just amazing. I mean, yeah. I mean, even I think even people that haven't seen the show would recognize this as the stranger. I mean, it was just such a huge moment of yeah you know this well nostalgia it, yeah for and, this time period and interestingly i think also bringing in so that you know i think i think takings certainly horror is in there but but bringing it to the pg-13 level yeah where you know like the the uh, sort of spielberg horror mm-hmm. the that it, it kind of marries that and so it just has that kind of all-encompassing. I mean, I feel like this was a sound that just defined 2016 in various ways. I, I, I'll go back, and this will be like 
one of those little postcards from 2016 that yeah. exists where that I'm that I'm always going to hear and think of that. And again, so much of my opinions on this comes from working in a record store. This is another release that oh, yeah. people just I, 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 I couldn't was keep one, I was one of those guys. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I couldn't keep it. It was hard for me to get copies of it at a certain point. I mean, I yeah. you know the initial order was not nearly enough for, and I never. And I didn't see it coming. I mean, it's a great score, but yeah, to for it to have had the like insane popularity that it did, yeah. Um, and I mean, it's, the, it's interesting. I, re, I I listened to an interview with uh, uh, Kyle Dixon and uh, Michael Stein uh, talking about it, and it, it's really funny. I mean, like they were blindsided by it. You know what I mean? Like oh, they yeah. they were asked to do this by these guys, the Duffer brothers. And the, and they had this like synth band that they were playing in in Austin for like whatever, five, six years before they ever did this. And, you know, they were kind of a novelty in a, in a certain sense. I mean, I think they had a following, but then they do this and it was just a whole other kind of, you know, echelon of uh, awareness that they, they kind of entered into. So... It yeah, I mean, I think it was a huge moment for, um, for scoring. Yeah. In in terms of you know kind of that sci-fi supernatural horror kind of stuff that was going on there, but then also for this band that was kind of plucked out of obscurity. Yeah, I mean, and now they're like you know pretty big deal. I mean, yeah, a lot of their records are like now in reissue and stuff, and um, you know, and those two, I think, as far as like just you know public consciousness and you know people's interest in film score those are probably two of the biggest ones of the Mm -hmm. last you know five six seven years but that's not to say that there weren't other really good electronic oriented horror film scores that came out yeah Um, the one that always kind of comes to mind the most is under the skin yeah um michael levy yeah so i mean micah am i supposed to i don't know i always say micah yeah um I mean, when I the first time I saw that movie, I I mean it really was crazy, and the it, score is so good. I mean, yeah, to to me, a very underrated film. Maybe it has received a lot. Well, of Well, I mean, it's it's a tough film. I the, the, in fact, I think the reason that I watched that film the first time was because I remember my brother in law saying. Okay, somebody recommended this film to me. <laughs> Can you watch this and explain to me why I should like it? <laughs> and and I understand where he was coming from. I mean, I think if you're not somebody who loves watching movies and and can uh, go with a movie even though it kind of goes with a slower pace, yeah, um, very slow pace. It's going to be tough, but yeah, I think it pays off. It's a, it's a, it's a great film, and visually, it's really arresting, and and the score is really good. Um, Apparently, uh, you know her first uh, film foray into film scoring. I didn't know that until just now. But oh, is that right? Has she done other since? Um, let me know. see. Because uh, I know she has that band, right? Makachu and the Jackie. Shapes. Jackety. Oh, Jackety. Jack. Jackie. Jackie. Yes. The okay. Natalie Portman movie, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Her second. So she's done two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then. Um, there, there are a few movies that I really liked that were on this noisy, like 31 best. Yeah. Um, from the like 2010 era, your next is one of them. Mm hmm. Uh, and we're still here, but I don't particularly remember the score for either one of those. 
So I guess they didn't really stick with me. But the movies themselves I thought were great. One score that did was Starry Eyes. Um, I kind of overlooked horror movie, but it's about this aspiring actress that finds, kind of neon demon-esque, I guess, that finds her way into the uh, underbelly secret cult world of Hollywood and the powers that be and all that kind of stuff. And she Mm -hmm. has to like sacrifice somebody to like get this, to like make it, you know, big and get her breakout role and stuff. And I mean, it's super crazy, but it does have that, you know, classic heavy synth, uh, score that, you know, similar to it follows and stranger things that we just heard. Um, I, I owned a copy of it for quite a while. Um, also on that list, um, we didn't mention uh, from the '80s, Videodrome, g- great uh, score. Long live ha- the new flesh, Howard Shore. Right? Yeah, I know that. That's one. That's one that I would think people that would point out. Sweet and Shore it, score. And this doesn't quite fit with horror, but from the '90s, Pi um, was one of those. Mm, al- Darren Aronofsky, right? Yes, right. One of the, one of those uh, synth heavy scores. You know, Who did electronic that? scores. Well, it was actually a lot of uh, Cliff Martinez. Okay. Um, course he rears his head again uh um oh gosh david holmes was on there and then but then like apex twin and Mm. all these different uh electronic artists of that era were kind of uh on that soundtrack yeah and it's yeah it's not necessarily horror but there are some it's unsettling it is deeply unsettling (laughs) and it is using synths that way yeah and i and i remember that being one back in the 90s where i was like oh yeah it's interesting to see this stuff being applied to something dark like that yeah um yeah i mean i had a i had a whole section of uh orchestral kind of works um to go through but i don't think i I think that's time for that i think that's another another, it's another episode I mean, clearly, I think what what you've established here very well is that, you know, the synth has been a huge tool in the horror arsenal for the last 40 years, at least. It's just so versatile in the... It is, and it can be, and it gets to those unsettling places. It just, like, it it can create those kind of tones that you're just like... it, it it's just discomforting. That's yeah. like the first thing I thought when the first thing that we listened to was theremin. Um, and I was like, man, that would have fit just perfectly in Mandy. It would. Yeah. Have. I was like, yeah. I could do that would have worked yeah. really well. So, I mean, I think, I think uh, it, it's really interesting to see how it's come back. This resurgence that, that we're seeing here, I think in the, in the 2010s, how long it's going to last. I mean, that'll be interesting to see, but hopefully for a while, but to get us up to like absolute present day, Halloween, um, the new one, right. uh, David Gordon green directing, David Gordon green directing, Danny McBride. Yeah. Writing the script. I'm really interested to see it, especially because of that, but a John Carpenter score, and so he not so just the, a John Carpenter score. He's not just rehashing his old themes only. No, he's actually composed some new music. He's composed for some new ones, and it is uh, John Carpenter. It uh, is his son uh, Cody Carpenter. Which is I I am angry with myself that I have still not seen them because he's he's Look, touring with this. He yeah, performs he it. And yeah, I am equally as upset because there was they played. ACL. I feel the same way about Goblin. They yeah. they they've done some touring. They and yeah. in fact, when I when you were uh, telling us to prep for this episode, I went on and uh, they recorded a live album in Austin just two years ago. That uh, 
I should have been there. So, I should have been listening to that. Yeah, same. I know people that went not only to see Carpenter and Austin, but to see Goblin. I didn't. Yeah. I really should have deeply regret it. Um, so John Carpenter, um, obviously, you know, he did all these film scores and stuff, which, you know, at the time were, uh, you know, successful. I mean, people noticed them and stuff, but really, you know, in the last like five or 10 years, people have really kind of started to prop him up as this right. like, you know, um, Titan of film scoring. And so that kind of, uh, brought him around cause it, I believe it was after Ghosts of Mars he became increasingly and all you know definitively kind of disheartened with the film industry yeah. and he stopped making movies. Uh, so he came, he's come back around now in his career as a musician, and he's released two albums of new music: Lost Themes, Lost Themes Two, and he tours with the Lost Themes band, as you uh, just said, um, with his son Cody Carpenter, but with Daniel Davies as well. Uh, who is also credited as being one of the composers of the new Halloween soundtrack. Um, now, I, I, for whatever reason, decided to just Google him right in this moment and um, found out that he is a British-American musician and composer. He's been in bands uh, like CKY, which I would have never expected, but he hmm. is the son of the guitarist Dave Davies of the Kinks. Oh, wow. And the godson. So then nephew The of- godson of John Carpenter. Okay, and nephew of Ray Davies. Yeah, who was in, wow. yeah. Um, so he is—he's uh, one of the composers of the new of the new Halloween, um, and I mean, Lost Themes is an amazing album mm-hmm. of you know kind of the same stuff you get in John Carpenter's films, and there are some live performances of the Lost Themes band doing some of the classics like Escape from New York, and just to kind of go back to uh, uh, John Carpenter's. Um, just lack of caring about gear. I mean, he plays when he, when he's playing with the Lost Themes band, he plays like a hundred dollar MIDI keyboard <laughs> that he's, that he's like running through, uh, you know, logic pro or whatever yeah, yeah, using yeah. like software since, uh, nice. not even like, you know, crazy <laughs> hardware, like, you know, Hey, mini Moogs or Jupiter eights or, you know, stuff you know, that a lot of people geek out about. He's just like, whatever. It's I, the same sound. I can I do a lot it. with it. I dig the gearheads, but if 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 you write good music, <laughs> yeah. you can play it on what you want. And you it, I mean, it's really bizarre watching him watching him play on something so simple, right? But you know, making such insane sounds. But I mean, one thing I really love about the Lost Themes band is uh, its incorporation of like live drums and electric guitar and stuff. I, I mean, it really adds so much to it. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, as excited as I am to see the new Halloween, I'm even more excited to hear. Uh, the new score that yeah. he's composed because if it's anything like Lost Themes 1 and 2, I mean, it's going to be incredible. And they also put out re-recordings of some of his famous themes as well uh, right. with the Lost yes. Themes band, right, the anthology. Right. So, Absolutely. Um, via Sacred Bones. Shouts out Sacred Bones. Uh, sponsor us. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Man, they, and, and it's cool that they've hooked up with John Carpenter and they've yeah, been I mean, promoting that stuff. Great pairing. Yeah, it's it's so it's it's. I mean, this has been really fun to kind of walk through all of this. You know, sort of the evolution of synth soundtracks in horror films because it it is like this is how I've experienced horror films in, yeah. in to a large extent. To, All of my favorites with these soundtracks. Um, getting back to this full sale, boy, am I feeling this. <laughs> <laughs> Imperial Stout, Bourbon Barrel Aged, 
Is it, it, is it just because of the bourbon barrel? Do you think it's a psychological thing? Because it's the same I don't ABV know. as the Pumpkinator. It is. You're right. I think it's probably the the combination the of the two. Cumulative the effects, the stacking. Um, but but uh, you know, it's great flavor. I think and it is good. I, and from what I remember, full sale, their stuff is always priced fairly reasonably. It's not like the. Avery, we we've talked about in the past where they they tend to go in like uh, yeah the I paid twelve a, ounces. I paid for, about as much for this um, one point six fluid ounce bottle of as, you did as I did for twelve ounces, ounces right, of Avery. Exactly. Yeah. So so you get you know hey the value for the dollar. Yeah. Um, it's great stuff and and it's good. And it's I been, mean, it's been for my first full sale. Not disappointed. Good at all. Very good. Yeah. Enjoying right. a lot, but. We hope that you enjoyed listening to all these soundtracks as much as we enjoyed talking about them. Hey, do you have sin scores that we did not cover that you think we should have? I'm sure. Um, that would be a great reason to go to Facebook slash facebook.com slash beer and a movie TX. Let us know. Twitter, beer movie show. Um, Instagram. Instagram, beer and a movie, I believe. Yeah. Um, and uh and do not tweet at me and saying that we forgot mandy because we did a whole episode about that movie <laughs> and we talked about the score in that one johan do Johansson, not out me we do love not me. we are happy to talk about him every day but yes we did just do an episode about that we yeah. did so don't don't come at me <laughs> with that nonsense right um and as always, if you're listening to this on apple podcasts or itunes or whatever um right. rate and review us incredibly helpful and please uh, subscribe subscribe so you can keep up to date with new episodes right. we're on spotify as well mm-hmm. so you know if you don't use itunes or apple podcasts um you can get us there and you can stream it at any time just like you would any of uh, you know your favorite music or whatever that's so right. that's always uh, very helpful mm-hmm. until next time this has been beer in a movie see you later we got nothing i thought it was adios i don't know <laughs> <laughs>